Well, you can turn over <clears throat> to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, and we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, we looked at Jesus, the compassionate healer, and then Jesus, the condemning judge, in Matthew 14, 34 to 36, and then Matthew 15, 1 to 9. Um, and I want to uh, today look at, continue on in this study, but uh, I want to kind of subtitle this Three Marks of Phony Religion. Three Marks of Phony Religion. And last week, we saw the first one, which is empty worship. Empty worship. And uh, if you look at the, the, the text there in chapter 15, you remember that Jesus had basically crossed over into the land of <clears throat> Gennesaret, and he... Uh, these people recognized him, and they brought all these people, and they begged that they would be healed by him, and they touched his garment, and their faith and his power, uh, they were made perfectly well. And we saw the compassion of Christ as he reached out to these people once again. Remember, these people were not followers of Jesus. They were just following Jesus. Big difference. They were following Jesus for what they could get, a free meal, a healing, whatever it might be. Uh, that's not why you follow Jesus. And we're going to look a little bit more at that today. But we saw that last week, and then in chapter 15, as we started that, we saw that the scribes and Pharisees came all the way <clears throat> from Jerusalem to confront Christ. And rather than saying hello or greetings or anything, they, they launched straight into their accusation. Why do your disciples, in verse 2, transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And so we saw last week how Christ kind of uh, confronted, uh, heard their confrontation, and they gave an illustration. And then he confronted them with their own law. And we talked about how the scribes and the Pharisees were keepers of the law, of God's law. And... <clears throat> One of their duties was to build a fence around the, the law so nothing could um, defile it, nothing could uh, cause harm to it. And unfortunately, what they did is they built this fence of their own rules and their regulations. They looked at God's word and they said, well, we can't keep this, let's make up our own. And so they come up with all kinds of oral traditions and oral laws and, and different rules and regulations. And they just burdened the people down with all of this stuff. And that's where the Talmud comes from. And we talked about the, the uh, Mi'kmash and all, that, all those things that they came up with. They had commentaries on their own law that they made up. These were not laws found in the Word of God. These were just things that they made up out of the blue, but maybe based on one of God's laws. But they just kind of made up their own, their own rule book. And then they had to have a commentary to tell to make sure that everybody understood what their rules were. So they had a commentary, and then they had a commentary on the commentary, and they had all this tradition piled on the people. And as a result of that, Christ confronts them in the beginning of chapter 15, and he doesn't really 
necessarily answer <clears throat> their question. He says, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And they're talk, not talking about just getting some germs off their hands. Okay, we should all do that before we eat. But they're talking about ceremonially washing. And they had it right down to how you had to pour the water and, you know, which finger you had. To, I mean, it was just a big ceremony. And that was part of their tradition that they created. Well, in verse 3, he answered them, and we looked at this last week. Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And he says, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me, it is a gift to God, or Corbin. Uh, then he need not honor father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And he calls them hypocrites. And he goes on there and he says, these people draw near, he quotes from the Old Testament, draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but they're what? Their heart, it says, is far from me and they, in vain, it says, they worship me. It's not that they don't worship God, but they do it with a wrong heart. They do it in, in vain. And that's the first mark of a phony religion, is empty worship. And that's what that means. It means there's nothing there. Teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men, he concludes there. See, what they did is they had a tradition in their culture that you had to take care of your parents when they got older. And so what they did is, rather than follow God's law, that you should care for your mom and dad and, and that kind of a thing, honor them. They came up with this idea that, well, if we had $1,000, just modern day th terminology, in the bank, and mom and dad needed 500 bucks to pay their bills, well, as a spiritual Jew in their culture, what you could do, and they came up with this rule, you could look at your $1,000 in your bank and say, well, you know what? Corbin on that $1,000. I'm going to give this to God. And when they did that, in their thinking, that overwrote the commandment that says you have to honor your father and mother. So they would look at the $1,000 and say, oh, mom and dad, you need 500 oh, you know, Corbin. That's literally what they would say. And that meant, well, that's, you can't use that. Sorry, that's set aside for God. That's set aside for a spiritual purpose because we're so spiritual. And so, oh, gee, you know what? I don't have anything else to give you. I'm sorry. <laughs> and their mothers and their fathers were wasting away in need. And because of their own selfishness and their hypocrisy, they made this rule that they could designate certain monies as a gift to God. But then it was okay for them, if they had need, to go and to say, uncorbin. <laughs> In other words, it's no longer a gift to God now. I'm going to take 500 for myself because I've got to go down to the store and buy some groceries. And then when mom and dad would come back, now they only got 500. Oh, you know what? Corbin, sorry, this is for God. See, this is the game, the little shell game that they were playing. And Jesus knew it. And they weren't honoring their parents the way the Bible says. And that's what Jesus does. He throws it right back in their face. And he says, why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. In other words, what Jesus was saying to them, he wasn't denying what they were doing. He wasn't denying his disciples weren't washing their hands. 
He was saying, yeah, we're doing it. So what? That's your tradition. That's something that you created out of thin air. We're going to follow the word of God. We're not going to follow your meaningless traditions. That was, that's what Jesus was saying to them. And they were greatly offended at it, as we're going to find out. And so in verse 7, you can read the other accounts in Mark and whatever and, and, and see how, they, uh, how this plays out. But in verse 7, he calls them hypocrites. And then he goes on and he quotes from the book of Isaiah. Now remember, this is in front of people. These religious leaders were always coming to Christ trying to mock him, try to catch him, try to push him into a corner and make him look bad in front of all the people so the people then would follow the scribes and Pharisees. But every time they did it, what happened? It backfired on him every time. And so that's where we're at this morning. And I didn't get to the marks of the phony religion last week, but the first one is that empty worship. You know, when we come here on a Sunday morning to worship the Lord, what are, what's in our hearts? You know, are we thinking about the 49er game? Are we thinking about what we're going to eat for lunch afterwards? Are we thinking about how we're going to pay our bills? Are we thinking about our kids? Are we thinking about our relatives who are in trouble? What are we thinking about? Or have we taken time on a Saturday evening, to prepare our heart to come together with God's people and to worship Him. That's what we should be doing as Christians. See, this isn't, you know, we look at the Sunday morning worship kind of as the, the, the cherry on top of the Sunday, you know, and that's really not what it's to be. This should be a time where we come together as believers and we share what great things God has done throughout the week, or we share the burdens we have, or we share the concerns we have. Let's be transparent about it and, and and, and just let the body take care of it. Let the body pray and let God work. But see, if we come here with just an agenda of getting a shot in the arm with a sermon, or gee, I hope they sing the song I like, or whatever, that's, that's empty worship. Because worship is not getting from God. That's not what worship is. Worship is giving to God. See, the problem with our churches today is everybody comes in the back door, and they sit down, and they're going, what am I going to get today? Let's see. And they start grabbing stuff. And they just fill themselves full and then they go out and then they come back the next week and they do the same thing over and over and over again. That's empty worship. You, you come here Sunday morning charged up, ready to minister to the body, ready to reach out to that visitor, ready to reach out to that lost soul and to really see God use you in ministry. That's the kind of worship that pleases God. It's not just a superficial like their worship was. They draw near to me with their lips, with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. Let me read the text that we're in this morning. 15, Matthew 15, verses 10 to 20. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. You have a marker. Mark those words, defiles. There's five times he mentions the word defile here. Verse 12. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And Peter answered and said to him, 
explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Some translations say, are you so dull? Verse 17, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulterers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Do you see how many times that word defile appears in this text? Five times. Basically means unclean. It means to be unpure. It means to be polluted, you might say. You see, and this is the second mark of a phony religion. That it's run by people with polluted hearts. It's run by people with defiled hearts. They may have all the garb on and they may look real spiritual, but you know what? In their heart of hearts, they're defiled. They're dirty. They're foul. In the New Testament, that word is used over and over and over again. It's used over and over in the, in the uh, Old Testament as well. In the Old Testament, it appears 225 times. Um, in Psalm 119, verse 1, it says, Blessed are the undefiled. James 1.27 calls for us to have pure religion, undefiled. In 1 Corinthians 8.7, Paul wants us to avoid a weak and defiled conscience. In Hebrews 12.15, it says we are commanded not to be defiled by the root of bitterness that springs up within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Have you ever thought about that? Just stopped and pondered that thought? The Spirit of God, the same power that raised Christ from the grave, dwells within us? He says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. He says, which temple are you? In Revelation 3, 4, our Lord prays for the faithful few in the church of Sardis. And he says, they have not defiled their garments. So they would walk with him in white because they're worthy. And in Revelation 14.4 it says, We listen to the song of praise offered to the Lamb of glory. And it's sung by those who were not defiled. And in Revelation 21 we see a beautiful picture of heaven. That one day when we enter there, nothing will be allowed to enter that can defile. What a glorious place. So as believers, the Bible says that we are to be like Christ. We're supposed to be little Christ. We're called Christians. That's what that means. And the writer of Hebrew describes in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, that we are to be harmless, holy, undefiled. God has clearly called us to live an undefiled life. Would you agree with that point? Very clear. God has called his people to be pure, to be clean, to be holy, to be undefiled, to be spotless, to be unspotted by the world. And if we're to be undefiled and unpolluted, then we must understand what this defilement is and how to deal with it. The Apostle Paul says that God wants to present to himself a chaste virgin, a pure church. He told Ephesians 
in the, in the letter to the Ephesians that the Lord wanted a church to be spotless, without blemish or blameless, it says. So if God calls us to be undefiled, if God calls us to be pure, to a holy life, then we must look at what it is that pollutes that holy life, what it is that defiles that holy life. And that's what we're going to see here as we look at this. Now, look at verse 10, because he says, when he called the multitude to himself, this is probably the multitude that was gathered around there in the area of Gennesaret, and they were being healed and everything, and he wanted them to hear him. He called them close to him. And he said, hear and understand. He was healing people. There was a big crowd. The, the Pharisees came, and they were probably standing away a little bit. The crowd was backed off, let the Pharisees have their confrontation with Christ. But we don't know how, much, how many days he was actually healing in the land of Gennesaret before this actually takes place. It doesn't tell us. It's not like, oh, he's doing this one minute and then the next minute. There's some time here, according to the other Gospels. And so, in the first nine verses of this chapter, the multitude was there, and the Pharisees had come, and they attempted to kind of discredit Christ in front of everybody, make him look bad. They had to confront him in verse 2, about the tradition. And then he shot back, why do you violate the commandment of God with your tradition? And he pointed out that their tradition was nothing more than a man-made rule and, and so forth. And then in verses 7 to 9, he basically ends up um, calling them hypocrites. And so the multitude is sitting there hearing all this. And they're standing there, and they don't know how much of the, you know, we don't know how much of the Pharisees' conversation in total they were listening to. But obviously they saw what was going on. And so it says he calls them to himself, and he says, hear and understand. It's kind of like somebody... Saying, hey, come here, I want, I want to tell you something. Come here, come here, I've got to tell you something. Have you ever heard anybody do that? You think, oh, this is important. Now they're whispering. Come here. You know, I'm the only one. They're telling me in this crowd of people, they need to talk to me. It must be important. What do you do? You go over and you, what is it? Well, let me tell you. And they start telling you something. And the reason that you make that effort to hear what they're saying is just because of the way they're doing it. You're thinking, this is something important. And that's what he wanted to get across to them. So he brought them to himself and he, he said, hear and understand. I not only want you to hear what I'm saying, I don't want you to just hear these words. I want you to understand them. I want you to apply them. What he's about to say, and you're going to see this, is monumental to them in their culture and in their religion. It was totally a new thought. And it, devast, it applied a devastating blow to all the religion that they're used to. So he says, hey, listen, understand this. And it has the idea, this isn't going to be easy for you to handle. This is going to be tough for you to grasp. You've got to really start thinking hard. Put on your thinking cap. Remember in school they used to say that, I need you to put on your thinking cap today because we're going to be talking about something that you really need to think hard about. Because what he's about to tell them is the total opposite of what they've been taught, of what they've been practicing all the years in Judaism. And so he calls them to himself and he says, hear and understand. 
It's not so hard to understand, but it's going to be really hard for you guys to grasp this and accept what I'm about to say. And here's what he says in verse 11. He says, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, that defiles a man. See, they believe that the ceremonial washing, okay, they believed if they touched anything that was defiled throughout the day, dead body, they could have touched, you know, I mean, something not that drastic, just something that they said in their law, this is a defilement. If you brushed by it, well, then you were defiled. So if you picked up your food and you ate without going through this whole rigmarole of ceremonially washing yourself, then your food was defiled. And what did you do? You put that food in your mouth. And then that made your body defiled. And then the whole person was defiled. That was their thinking. So he wants them to understand that's not proper thinking. They even believed also that uh, there was a demon that could actually um, kind of defile the, 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 the hands of people. They would possess the fingers of people. And so when you touch something, if you didn't go through ceremonially cleaning yourself and you're washing your hands... You would, you would pass this demon on to somebody else. None of this is biblical. See what I'm saying? It's all their tradition. It's just stuff they came up with. And churches do that all the time. I think it was Spurgeon who said, if a church, doesn't, if a church didn't have a service on Sunday at 11 o'clock in the morning, there probably wouldn't be any Christians. <laughs> because for years, years throughout the Christian church, when, when is church? What's well, it's 11 o'clock. <laughs> That's just a default time. This whole thing, business with Saturday night services and all that, that's all new. See, it was always rigid. And see, we fall into those kind of traditions sometimes that overrule biblically what the Bible tells us. Matter of fact, when churches started doing Saturday night services and all this stuff, I had a discussion one time with somebody, and they said, well, that's just not biblical. You know, we're supposed to meet on the Lord's Day, and that's the first day of the week. I said, I agree with that statement. We should meet on the first day of the week. But it also says in the book of Acts that they went, what, daily, house to house. So if you want to be real biblical, we should be having church every day of the week. Not just in the church building. We're coming over to your house, and then the next night we're going to the next people's well, no, wait a minute, you know, they don't want to hear that. See, we think if we just do our little Sunday morning service and then we do a Wednesday night service that we've kind of fulfilled our obligation. And so, you know, if we can squeeze everything spiritual that we have for the week between 10 and 11.30 on a Sunday morning, then we can walk away guilt-free thinking, yep, went to church this week. Whatever happened to Sunday's the Lord's Day? The thought of, do we just give them a couple hours? Or do we give them the whole day? A lot of churches have Sunday night service. A lot of churches come back together Sunday night for worship, for Bible study, for teaching. You're all looking at me kind of scared right now. What's he going to say next? Well, they do. But you know what? We kind of get rid of that guilt because, wow, you know, we're so busy. We just have busy lives and got hard work. And, you know, it's the West Coast and it just doesn't work here. We need to pray about that as a church. I'll just leave it there.
But don't think for a second you come Sunday morning and you do a little care group in the middle of the week, you fulfilled your obligation to God. That's all I'm saying. It's a day-by-day thing. We can't invent these traditions and, and they overrule what, what the Word of God said. It should be a joy for us to gather together as believers whenever the opportunity comes. And so Christ brings up this point and he says, listen, what goes into the mouth not what goes into the mouth defiles a man. In other words, you can't get defiled by putting something in your mouth. What are you people thinking? That's ridiculous. He says, what comes out of the mouth, that defiles a man. It's very simple. It's a very simple statement that he's making. He's saying defilement is a matter of the heart. That's where he's going with this. It's not a matter of what's outside you. And the Pharisees come along and they say, well, how dare you eat this food without going through the ceremonial cleansing? Oh, goodness gracious. You eat with defiled hands and therefore you eat defiled food. And you take it and you defile your body. Because you haven't gone through the ceremonial washing. And Jesus is just saying, you know what? I don't agree with your tradition. It's not biblical. It's not found in the Bible. What you're saying is something that you made up on your own. And what he's pointing out to them, very simple, is that you can't be defiled by eating something. That's ridiculous. It's not what goes in that defiles, that makes somebody unpure, that makes somebody unclean. He says it's what comes out. (laughs) That's the important part. I mean, the statement's kind of obvious. Jesus is saying the pollution and the defilement is not a physical issue. It's a spiritual issue. And see, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they never wanted to deal with the spiritual issues because they they were caught up wanting every time. And so they always came to Christ, kind of confront him on the physical thing. Well, do you believe John the Baptist was from God? Or do you believe this? And they made up all these crazy questions they would ask him, trying to catch him, put him in a corner. It's not a ritual matter. It's a moral matter. That's what Christ is pointing out to them. And in one statement, verse 11, what he says there, he basically boils down and he crystallizes everything that he and God stand for and everything the scribes and the Pharisees stand for. And he crystallized it down to, here's what God says and here's what they're saying. And you can obviously see that they're totally opposite. So in a way, he's telling these people, who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the traditions of these religious leaders or are you going to follow God's word? That's why he quoted from God's word, honor your father and mother. He always elevates the word of God and he pushes down their outward religion and their outward traditions. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul says that they had a form of godliness, but they were impotent. There's no power. See, there's people, even within churches today, that they have a form of godliness. They know all the language. They know all the lingo. They carry their big Bible. They do, you know, dress. They, do, they play the part. And what Jesus is pointing out here is that doesn't cut it. He set himself, set himself up as totally opposed to the religion of the Pharisees. He wasn't saying, well... 
you know, some of the things they do right. Don't you just love how Jesus was always just so black and white? There wasn't any gray area. He didn't look at the Pharisees and say, well, they're nice people. They're really nice people. It's like sometimes when the people come around to our doorsteps and, you know, they're from a certain cult and, you know, rather than confront them on the error of their ways so many times, oh, no, no, we don't, no, just kind of shut the door. But when you start to point out what they really believe, you point out and you're bold, they don't come back. They don't want to come back to your door because they don't, they don't want to face the fact of what the Bible says and what they believe is totally opposed. I mean, we shouldn't be so shocked that Jesus set himself against the Pharisees and the scribes in this way. In the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says that man looks on the what? Outward, right? The outward appearance. That's what we do. I mean, that's just the default. But it says God looks at the heart. And that's where the critical issue lies. And it's been said over and over and over in the Old Testament. And Jesus basically says the same thing. He says, you know what? It's not what comes out of your... It's it's not what goes into your mouth. It's what comes out of your mouth. That's what defiles you. That phrase there, that which comes out of your mouth, defiles a man. If you look over in Mark chapter 7, verse 15, it's the same same account, basically. Verse 7, verse... uh, Chapter 7, verse 15 of Mark, he says this, There is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile man. But the things which come out of him, those things, those are the things uh, which defile a man. So he, once again, says very clear, he, nothing that you put in your body can defile you. But that which comes out. And Mark really gives the broadest perspective here on this whole, whole thing. Um, because G- Matthew is kind of saying anything that goes into the mouth, but Mark says nothing that even goes into you. So he gives a very broad perspective. And Mark adds just a small word at the end of uh, uh, verse 19 there. Thus he declared all foods clean. I mean... That is unbelievable, what Jesus is saying. He says, you know what? He's saying there's no more unclean foods. (laughs) That's what he's saying. No more kosher, no more ceremonies, no more forbidden food. It's over. I mean, that would have, you know, their eyes would have rolled back in their heads at this point, and they just would have started to convulse with what they were hearing Jesus say at this point. They couldn't handle it. Their whole life had been follow following this prescribed diet based upon clean and unclean. Not only that which was defined as such biblically, but then they added all their tradition on top of it. They had to abide by these certain diets and all these activities and eating, drinking, touching, all these things. And so they were living by all these external rituals. And Jesus came along with one statement and basically shattered the whole thing. I mean, that's what religion is, right? Religion is man's attempt to come up with a way to reach out to a holy God. That's what it is. And I just want to tell you if, you, if you put, you know, I mean, 
generally Christianity is called a religion. But I'll tell you this, there's no other religion other than Christianity that can change the heart. You can go to any other religion and they'll give you a book and they'll give you a manual and say, well, here's what we do in our religion. <laughs> here's the things we do. We can't eat this. We can't eat that. We worship on this day. We worship that. When the, bell, the clock strikes 12, we bow in prayer to this direction. They can go through all this stuff. But Christ and Christianity is the only religion that says, you know what? It's not about all that stuff. It's about a change of heart. Because the Bible says the heart is wretched. Okay? And theirs, scribes and the Pharisees here, were particularly wretched. They were filled with hate. They, they wanted to kill Christ. I mean, here's a man that all he did was help people. And they wanted to kill him. Why? Because of their tradition. He stood up against their tradition. Because they were going through all these external ceremonies. Why did they feel so strongly attached to these external issues? Most of the people that fall in this category do. Most people who have empty worship in their life, most people who have a polluted or a, a defiled heart fall into these two categories. They feel so strongly and they hold on to external things. I go to church on Sunday. I read my Bible. I do feed the homeless. And they, they hold on to all these things when you ask them about their spirituality. Where did all this ceremony and ritual and washings come from in the first place? Well, in fairness to them, let's say this. I mean, it started with the book of Leviticus. That's where it started. If you go back and you read the book of Leviticus, you'll find a long list of ceremonial observances that they were required to follow. There's a list of animals that they couldn't eat. There's a list of animals that they could eat, birds and so forth, all kinds of things. The way they were to cook describes all kinds of things. There's a mass of ceremonies in the Old Testament. So in fairness to them, they just didn't dream this stuff up. They gave what God gave them, and then they polluted it with their own traditions. For example, they were considered defiled if they had contact with the carcass of an unclean animal in Leviticus 11, or with any carcass in Leviticus 17, or by eating a carcass in Leviticus 22. If they came into contact with any kind of abnormal use issue coming from a, a, a bodily organ, in Leviticus 15, they were considered to be unclean. Woman going through the process of uh, menstruation, they were unclean. They were unclean after childbirth. You couldn't touch anybody with leprosy. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And these were regulations. These were rules that God gave them. And they had them all, and they looked at them, and they, they made them ceremonially unfit. But I challenge you to go back in the Old Testament. And when you're looking at all these ceremonies and all these things they couldn't do or whatever, never ever in the Old Testament does it say that these things were sinful. It doesn't say they were sinful. It isn't sinful to have a child. It isn't sinful to have a bodily function. It isn't sinful to touch a dead body or to touch an animal. That's not sinful. God never said it was sinful. The Bible never says that these things were sins. But it said that it 
constituted a person ritually unfit. They were ritually unfit. They were ritually defiled if they did these things. That's very important because they couldn't come into worship God because of this external unfitness until they followed whatever cleansing was necessary. And all this started back in the Old Testament. And you sit there and you ask, well, why? Why did God do this? This doesn't make any sense. It was external. It was never defined as sin, but only defined as ritual unfitness. And here's why. Very simple. When God gave the Old Testament, it was in the early days, days you know, of, of, of God's redemptive plan with his covenant people, all that. The New Testament calls it the rudiments, the ABCs, when things were just getting started. Whenever you want to impart information to a child, you want to teach them something, what do you do? You give them books. You... you you give color books. You give picture books to your grandchildren or your children because you want them to learn. And the books that they got when they were very little, okay, our grandkids, they were full of pictures because they couldn't read. You know, you don't give a little two-year-old, you know, here's the seventh volume of the Cyclopedia Britannica. Have fun, you know. They're not going to know what to do with it, even though there may be some pictures in there. You know, for the most part, it's not going to make any sense. So there were lots of pictures when your children were little. That's, that's what God is doing here. See, and then through the pictures, they learn words. They learn a dog, and they look and they point. And after a while, you say dog, and you say enough. What do they do? They, dog. You can point to the picture, and the child will say dog. And then eventually, you can write dog on a piece of paper, and you dog, look at the picture, dog, yeah, and they get it. And pretty soon, when you write The word dog on a piece of paper, they say dog. They can read. That's how information is passed on. So God is saying, do you see how you cannot come into my presence to worship me physically when you are ceremonially unclean? God does not want us to come to him with a heart that's impure. So he gave them pictures along the way. The whole ceremonial process is basically a giant picture of what God wants on the inside. I mean, remember the idea of circumcision, okay? Well, it's not just a physical thing, okay? God's not interested in just a physical circumcision of the body. In the Old Testament, it says, no, you need to circumcise your heart. The reason that God gave the ceremonial system was as a picture That if God was concerned that we would be clean on the outside, how much more is he concerned about what's on the inside? So when you come to God's holy hill to worship him, you come with clean hands and a pure heart. That's what the word of God says. The whole part of clean hands was to demonstrate the need for a pure heart. And unfortunately, they just kept on piling all these traditions on top and they took the word of God and they, they defiled the word of God. And they turned it into something it's not. They thought that if God wanted pictures, well, you know what? We're just going to keep on adding pictures. We'll add our own pictures, God. And they started making their own pictures. So all of a sudden, you couldn't carry a stick for more than 15 feet on the Sabbath. Well, that doesn't say that anywhere. They just thought, well, we've got to add more pictures. We've got to add more rules. We've got to add more regulations. And they brought so many in, they painted such a tight 
protective fence around the word of God, you couldn't even see the word of God if you wanted to because it, all, the, all the slats in the fence were basically their own man-made traditions and rules. And the word of God got lost. And by Jesus' time, the Pharisees and the scribes had de- developed such an elaborate external system of ceremonies. It was so complex. It was so burdensome. No one, no one could ever even keep it. It's impossible. They couldn't even keep it. Because it was so complex. They had books on books on books on books on how to keep it. I mean, that was the, you know, the, the minutia. It was just crazy. And unfortunately, they took their own tradition and they elevated it even above the word of God. In their own writings, it says that it's, it's, it's blessed if, a, if a, uh, a scribe or a Pharisee studies the traditions of our religion. You can do that at night. And during the day, you study the word of God. You give it equal time because they're equally important. And you can see how tradition would just overwhelm them. So they developed all this law. They couldn't deal with it. So then, once they realized they couldn't deal with it, see, this is how convenient phony religion is. They looked at all this stuff and they said, you know, this is impossible. Look at what we've done. We've created all this stuff. We can't even keep it. Well, let's draw another picture. Let's make another rule. You know what they said? Here's the rule they made. You can get up in the morning. This is part of their law, their man-made tradition. And you can look at the day and say, you know what? I intend to be pure all day. If you say those words, then you can go do whatever you want. Because you've stated... I know I can't keep all these ceremonies. I can't keep all these. But, you know, I intend to do it. Just like, oh, mom and dad, you want some money? Sorry, Corbin, this is for God. Hey, honey, how are we going to pay the bills? Uh, I don't know. Where's mom and dad? Uh, Uncorbin. <laughs> Give me 500. Okay. Oh, Corbin. Sorry, mom and dad. See, very convenient system that they worked out. And if God didn't intend for holiness to be an external manner, matter, then you might ask, well, why are all these ceremonies here? Once again, they're symbols. If you read through the book of Hebrews, you see this over and over and over again. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, it says all this stuff in the Old Testament, it's an example. It's a shadow of heavenly things. It's, it's a shadow of things to come. When you see somebody's shadow, do you see the person? You don't see the person, right? You see their shadow. You don't go over and talk to the shadow of somebody. That would be ridiculous. When you see a shadow shooting across the ground, if you like airplanes, like I like airplanes, what do I do? I look up because I know there's a plane up there because I'm seeing the shadow go. A shadow tells you that there's something there. That's what all this Old Testament regulations, it was a shadow of things to come. In Hebrews 9, chapter 9 and 10, it says that they were figures for the time, then present. And it goes on and it explains this all, all this. In 10.1, it says that they were a shadow and not the very image. That's why in Hebrews 10.22, it's all summed up and it says, Let us draw near with a true heart, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. It's not talking about ceremonial washing. It's talking about God cleansing us with the blood of his Son. We need spiritual cleansing, not just physical cleansing. 
That's why in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, he says, you know what, you need to leave the principles of the, 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 the doctrines of all this, of the Messiah, it says. It's not talking about Christianity, it's talking about Judaism. He says, let's leave this doctrine. Leave the washings. Move on to other things. And so it's very important that you understand that as a, as a foundation because when you come to Jesus here being this, this teacher who's correcting them, you have to understand what he's actually saying. He's not throwing out God's law. This was not God's law. What they were doing was their own law. They made up their own law. And he's throwing that up. And basically, he's telling them, you know what? You can go through all the ceremonies you want. You can clean your, you know, clean your fingers and your hands till the skin rubs off. But you know what? Your heart is basically a cesspool. And it's pumping out filth. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, I haven't come to destroy the law. That's what Jesus said, but I came to fulfill it. And so we need to understand what defiles the heart. And that's what he points out here. He says, come here, I want you to hear something. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out. And look at his disciples here. Verse 12. Then his disciples came and said to him, basically paraphrased, uh, do you know you really just ticked off these religious leaders? He says, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I mean, what's Jesus supposed to say? Oh, no, why would they? No, he knew. That was his intent. Confrontation. But he answered and he said, Listen to this, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. You know what he's referring to here? Remember when we went through the parables? The sower, the seed, and some of the, the weeds grew up with the, the, the wheat and the tares. You remember that? And they were saying, well, we've got to go rip them out. No, let them alone. Why? Because you may rip out some good ones and some bad ones. It's not for you to discern what's a tear and what's wheat. That's God's decision. Does God want a pure church? Does God want a holy church? Yes. But the church can get in really, really big trouble really fast when they start questioning the motives of people. They start questioning just how spiritual somebody is by merely, purely what they see on the outside. And that's all we can see. You can tell me you're a Christian all day long. How am I supposed to know? How do you even know that I'm a Christian? You don't know. You don't see my heart. You don't know. I can profess Christ. Big deal. There's people that go before Christ in the end time and go, hey, Lord, Lord. Remember that? Haven't I done this? Haven't I done that? We don't know what's in somebody's heart. That's why we can't make judgments on purely people's motives. Now, we can look at somebody's life. We can make certain judgment calls. But that's not really our place. And so when he says here that they were offended, sure they were offended. But look at how he answers them. He answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father 
has not planted will be uprooted. In other words, you know what? That's why he's saying, leave him alone. Don't worry about it. He's relating back to the, the parable of the, the wheat and the tares. He says, and this is the third point in a phony religion, is that they have blind leaders. Not only empty worship and polluted hearts, but blind leaders. Concerned about them is the idea. Don't even go there. That's, that's kind of a hard, a hard thing. I mean, you know, well, wait a minute. Don't they need to hear the truth? Don't they need to understand that Christ is the way? Don't they need to see and hear from us the word of God? And basically he says, you know what? Just leave them alone. You can't change them. You're not going to change them. God has to change them. He says basically the statement says stay away from them. That's what the statement says. It says, you know what? They're going to get uprooted. Don't go near them. Let them alone. The judgment's going to come, and the Father's going to separate his from those who are not. They will be uprooted. Anyone who pretends to present, represent a true religion or know God or know the truth, but his inside is not true, stay away from him. It's the staying away judgment. Hosea 4.17 says, Ephraim has joined idols. Let him alone. It's, a, it's almost as if they are abandoned to judgment. And it's also saying, stay away from them. In other words, don't you act as their judge. That's none of your business. God is their judge. Because they wanted to go and rip out the tares, and he's saying, no, don't do that. And that's very hard. But there comes a point in time where it's like, you know what? You've got you to reach bottom. You've got to come to terms with what you're dealing with, because I can't. Third truth about a hypocrite is that they'll lead others to disaster. And that's what he points out here. They're blind leaders of the blind. If the blind leads the blind, both of them are going to fall into the pit. Or the word ditch there, it's a word for a hole they used to dig and fill up with water. It only would take so long if you were a blind person wandering around in a field that you would fall into one of these pits. Spiritually, it's talking about hell. And what Jesus is saying, you stay away from people like. Not that you don't try to help, not that you don't give them the truth, but boy, they reject it. Turn them over. Stay away from them because they lead people into the pit. And we need to understand that we're not called to expose ourselves to these kinds of people. Not in the name of anything. In fact, Jude says that when you come across such a person, You snatch them like a brand from the burning, lest your own garments be spotted. In other words, you don't want to get near somebody who's dealing with this kind of stuff. Whether it's a phony religious teacher, whether it's an alcoholic, whether it's somebody that has major issues and you've tried to help them, there comes a point in time where you've got to say, no more. I'm going to pray for you. I love you. I support you in any way I can, but I'm not going to further your behavior. The blind leading the blind is a play on their own teaching because rabbis called themselves the leaders of the blind. 
Just a little irony there that Jesus threw in for fun almost. In Romans 2.19, Paul says, You fancy yourself to be guides to the blind. (laughs) And the Lord, several times, calls them blind guides. People who are leading them are blind. And they're going to fall into hell. Stay away from them. Don't go near them. Don't expose yourself to hypocrites. Or people pumping out false religion in the name of Christianity. You know, we have some people that are just so tolerant with erroneous doctrine. Well, you know, it's a church and they're Christians. Do you understand what they teach? They do not teach the gospel. They don't teach the pure word of God. They add all this other stuff, the faith, healing, all this other garbage they add in. And it revolves around their escapades to get money out of your pocket so they can drive their BMWs and their Rolls Royces and have five houses across the country and be on TV and all that. And people are just so gullible. Paul says, stay away from them. Jesus said, stay away from them. That's hard to do sometimes, but that's what we're called to do. He says, let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. If the blind leads the blind, both of them are going to fall in the the ditch. In verse 15, Peter quickly said, answered him and said, explain this parable to you. He said, are you still without understanding? That word still there, also still, is a phrase never used in the Greek New Testament anywhere but right here. It means even yet. He's saying, with all that you know, and all that's been said, and all that's been done, everything you see me, are you still not getting this? He <laughs> says, do you not yet understand what whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach, it's eliminated? Mark adds to that, does not enter the heart. Whatever enters the mouth does not enter the heart. You can't be defiled by what goes in your mouth. That's what he's saying, because it goes through the normal elimination process. It doesn't pollute you. And the question the Jew was going to be asking at this moment, well, what about all these ceremonies? What about all this? So he says, you know what, it just goes in the stomach and it goes out the draft. It's eliminated, it's out. But, he says, those things that proceed out of the mouth, Mark says, out of a man, comes from the heart. That's what defiles. That word heart is not the physical heart, but it's called, you know, we talked about this before. It's the inner self, it's the mind, it's the source of thought, it's attitude, it's the motive, desire, everything. Just like we say, I, I love you with all my heart. Okay, I'm not talking about you know, the blood pumping. My heart goes out to you. you know, we say words like that. We're not talking about the organ. We're talking about kind of our seat of emotions. And he lists them here. He says, here's what comes out. He says, but those things would proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man for out of the heart proceed and he goes through a list evil thoughts murders adulterers fornications thefts false witness blasphemy i mean he kind of just sums everything up titus 113 talks about the same filthy people he says cretans are always liars evil beasts lazy gluttons i mean it's you know you can go through all sorts of lists 
and maybe your one little pet sin isn't in the list. But the idea is, you know what? You're defiled. You're, you're sinful because your heart's sinful. That's what he wants them to understand. He said, these are the things which defile a man. But you know what, guys? To eat with unwashed hands? It's ridiculous. That doesn't defile a man. It's what comes out of the heart. That's why in Matthew 5, 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the what? Pure in heart, for they shall see God. When someone's lost in their sin and someone's life is devastated, what do they have to do? They have to turn to God and they have to repent and they have to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. He will answer that prayer. The only way our hearts can be purified is through the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes down to a choice folks here today, it comes down to a choice. Are you going to continue blindly going through life? Or are you willing to reach out and grab a hold of the truth and allow it change your heart, purify your heart? That's what God wants to do. He wants to take away that stony heart and replace it with a new heart. Where do you go to get this new heart? You go to God. I can't give it to you. That's what he wants us to see out of this passage. Father, we pray this morning that your word would make itself real to us. Lord, I know that it's easy to play religious religiosity and it's easy to put on the face, a smile, and dress up and bring the Bible to church and everything's fine. But Lord, I have no doubt that there's even people in this room right now where they have major issues going on in their life, but they don't want to be transparent. They don't want to be open. I understand that. Sometimes it can be downright embarrassing. But if we can't be honest with you, God, as we sit here in the quietness of this this time right now, if we can't in our own heart before you say, you know what? I do have empty worship. I do have a defiled or polluted heart. I do feel like a blind person wandering around without any direction. And God, I need some help. I know, God, you're there. You're there to answer that prayer. You're there to receive that person the way they are. Because your word says that you're going to make them a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new in Christ. And there's not a person in this room that isn't messed up. Because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all been touched with the stain of sin. We've all been spiritually defiled in your presence, God. And it's only through the sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that allows us a chance, a hope, And Father, we cry out to you today. And I pray that for each person in this room this morning. I don't care if you're doubting. I don't care what questions you have. You take them to God. And if you're serious, if you're sincere, God will meet you right where you're at. And he'll fill that need. Because he promised to do that. We pray, Lord, for the rest of this day that we would live lives that are honoring to you. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen.